Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. On this episode, I chat with writer Rich Topeka. We talk rock and roll archaeology, the mystery of the music we have yet to discover, and the stories we find behind it. Let's get into it. y'all how you doing it's maddie c thanks so much for being here uh been home a little over a week from the tour i'm still a little groggy but uh things are good i hope you've been paying attention to the uh the Substack over there what am i making substack.com i've been uh putting up some stuff i uh i've been, been trying to get the uh the tour updates out so that they're semi-timely i mean i realize i'm home and have been for a while uh, but as I've been sharing with some people, uh, it was just too tough to do the the details of the of the day's justice on the road. It was just it was too hard to sort of remember it all, retain it all, find a time to write it well and make sense of it, and have a little time to sort of unpack it. And so it's been good to sort of unveil these, uh, you know, a few days later or even a week or two later. So my plan right now is to try to keep doing one or two of those a week. Um, and I'll just kind of keep eking those out. I'm also going through a bunch of the stuff that I filmed and recorded over the tour. There's a lot of stuff there to go through, but I am hoping to be able to share some of that with you in the coming weeks. It's still a pretty remarkable experience from which I, I just got home and I'm still trying to sort of deal with it all in my head. There's been so much amazing kindness and generosity that's come out of it. And, and as I've, I've shared with so many of you, it's, it's really kind of overwhelming, but it's, it's been really, it's been really incredible to be home, to kind of tell some stories to people, to share some stuff in written form on the blog. And it's just been, it's been really gratifying and really fun. And uh, frankly, I'm already planning the next one. So um, stay tuned. Uh, I hope you all got a chance to listen to my really special episode last week where I talked to my mom about travel and specifically about Mexico and the way that our family has fallen in love with it. And it has kind of become our second home, or at least it was until we lost my dad. Um, but it's a really, I'm really proud of it. Um, it's, it's, it's a really special episode, obviously, for me. But it's also something that many of you have reached out and and said really kind things about, and uh, it means a lot. And um, my mom is a really uh, special and incredible person, and uh, I feel really lucky to have her in my life. And um, and the reason that I kind of wanted to brag about the episode last week is actually the day after it posted, um, she and I discovered uh, kind of a time-sensitive deal for a trip to Southeast Asia. And so uh, the day after I, I booked a podcast where I talked to my mom about the importance and the beauty and the magic of travel, the day after I, I published that conversation for you all to hear, my mom and I booked a trip to Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia. So I will be going to Southeast Asia with my mother for 19 days this November. So please stay tuned. There will be a lot more talk about that 
I feel incredibly fortunate that I get to do that at all, and that I get to do it with my mother is, uh, I'm, I'm doubly grateful. Um, so right after I tell you that I have just booked a trip to a foreign land, and I will not get into the finances of it, but I also have to ask for your financial help. Uh, this show is powered by your financial support. And uh, if I'm going to go to Southeast Asia, I'm going to need a couple extra bucks, I'm afraid. I really could use your help. Uh, if you're not already a paid subscriber, head on over to whatamimaking.substack.com. You can join and become a paid subscriber for as little as $6 a month. No, right now you don't get anything extra except the goodness of doing something kind and investing in something that you believe is important. If you enjoy what I'm doing here, if you're using this regularly, if you're listening to this pod, if you're reading the stuff that I that I put up there, the only way that I can make time to do this is by creating a way to make a little bit of money from it. And so every week I have to ask you if you'll become a new member. And we didn't get any new paid subs this week, and I really need some new paid subscribers. So if you'd please go over there to whatamimaking.substack.com. If you enjoy what I'm doing, head on over there. Sign up for a paid subscription. There are three different levels that are that are available for you to choose from. Again, little as six bucks a month. It's what makes this show possible, so please. Uh, the other thing that you could do that would be an enormous help is find one friend who would enjoy what I'm writing and talking about here and share this with them. One person, please. Uh, it's really hard to grow something like this organically, and I don't have any revenue to grow it with uh, ad placement and... Uh, things like that. I, I just don't have a way to do that right now. So I have to do this organically. And the only way to do that is to ask you to share it with people who might like it. So find a person in your life, maybe more if you want. Let them know that I'm out here. Share what I'm doing. Uh, maybe write uh, a review or, uh, or rate the pod. Uh, share it on your on your social media. That kind of stuff really helps. I'm sorry to sound like a beggar, but uh, we got to find a way to keep this train rolling. Um, I should also mention that I have a new email for the show. It's whatamimakingblog at gmail.com. So now the two sort of easiest ways for you to get a hold of me, or if you want to send me an email, you send it to whatamimakingblog at gmail.com, or you can go over to speakpipe.com slash whatamimaking, and you can leave me a voice message. You can say, hey, Maddie, I really wish you'd interview so-and-so, or how come you never talk about this, or have you ever thought about doing a piece on that? Hit me up. Let me know. Maybe you've got a really great guest idea for the show. I'd love to hear from you. Maybe you just want to rant and rave and you've got something really important and worthwhile and valuable and funny to say. I don't know. Hit me up. I'm always looking for collaborators. I always want to have conversations. As you know, a big part of what I am trying to do here is build community. This whole thing is about trying to build a community. It's about trying to sort of connect these disparate parts of our lives and bring people together. It was one of the best things about my tour was that I got to basically create these little communities just by simply saying, hey, can I come play a show at your house? And people brought friends from work and the neighborhood and different parts of their lives and they got together for a night. Maybe there were 10 of them, maybe there were 40 of them. But the point was we built a little community every night on the road in a different town. I got to do that. And I sort of feel like that's what I do here digitally every day. And so I'm really happy to have you as a part of this community. And if you're enjoying this, I'd love for you to find a way to become involved and to, to be a part of this community. So thank you for being here. I'm going to stop ranting now and let's get to my guest and the reason that you're here. 
Writer Rich Topeka is a, a rock and roll archaeologist. I mean, that's that's my terminology. His CV will tell you that he's a published author. He's also the staff music writer at the Lansing City Pulse, which is how I know Rich. But what Rich Topeka really does is dive into the past and then unfurl the music and the stories that most of us have missed. Rich's book, There Was a Light, chronicles the all-too-brief life of Chris Bell, half of the mercurial duo that founded the legendary band Big Star. We talk at length about the trust that Rich needed to build to get people from Bell's musical career and his life to open up about their friend and former collaborator. The result is a new part of the Big Star story and a much deeper understanding of one of the main architects behind the band. Somehow a made-for-TV movie and a couple of early cassette purchases led to a life in music for Rich Topeka. Once he fell for Elvis and the Beatles, the rest was history. And then history is where Rich sought to find new sounds and new stories. Rich and I talk about our shared love for unearthing lost classic recordings and the often fascinating backstories they carry. There are discussions of loner folk, garage rock, a recording studio and pressing plant in the Michigan pastures, and of course, Motown. Detroit plays a central role in the cultural history of Michigan, but Rich has a special and abiding affection and interest in the garage rock years here in Lansing. Both of us opine about how fun it would be to put a Nugget-style collection together from Lansing bands of a given era. Most cities of this size have a musical story to tell, and Lansing is, of course, no exception. Ultimately, for all of his digging and compiling and cataloging, Rich Tupika is using his Indiana Jones as rock archivist skills to grow our collective musical community. Whether he is writing a weekly column or researching a book, he is weaving lives and stories together through music. His passion for both the music and the stories that he coaxes into the public record are what make Rich a good writer and a great researcher. So come on and join a pair of music lovers nerding out on all of the things we have yet to discover. Here now is my conversation with author Rich Topeka. Enjoy. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, just trying to keep busy. Um, you know, there's a day job, but then also you try to pepper in, as you know, uh, music and, and the passion project. So it, it's always a, a juggle and a struggle somewhat. Absolutely. But, uh, so what know, is the what is the day job right now? Um, so I, I've for a long time, I've worked with like indie publishers. So, okay. uh, you know, I work for uh, independent publishers. So I do a lot of just background publisher stuff, um, you know, it's, it's from selling ads to media kit stuff to you know i still sometimes put on my journalism hat in areas outside of music too so it's okay. uh it's just i came up you know i put out a zine um with a few extra bucks i had i think probably that was like around 2007 or eight or so in okay. lansing and uh after that i got hired at, at the local weekly in lansing because of what i did with that zine like uh I put out just one issue. And then after that, they contacted me and said, hey, why don't you just write music for us? And uh, at that point, I said, well, 
hey, I can do that because then I don't have to worry about paying to have this zine come out. Um, Absolutely. And so, so yeah, the, the rest is history. Was uh, yeah. so they so they contacted you in 07 or 08, and you've basically been the staff music writer at the City Pulse ever since, right? Right. Yeah, and you know, to varying degrees of. Uh, involvement and there's also other people there who will occasionally cover other sorts of music like larry cosentino at the city pulse does more of the jazz and classical stuff sure. larry is really talented uh he could write for the new york times like not even exaggerating um and so i tend to cover you know i sometimes veer outside of it but i always try to cover underdog stuff which is where my heart kind of lies is underground music and that sort of thing and uh to write about music where um you know it might not be a huge show but it, it's good music yeah, that's always my gauge is it good music and that's who i try my best to cover when did um, you when did you fall in love with music what was that experience like like was that something that your folks handed down to you or maybe an older sibling like how did you get the bug Right. So I grew up in a very small town in Michigan for the first few years of my life where it's literally – it wasn't even a town. It was a village called Ashley, so there was literally no culture there. Um, however, uh, I just happened to catch on TV uh, – <laughs> whatever year Elvis and me came out, I think I was like around oh, wow. seven or eight years okay. old. So I caught that, and I was like, whoa, this is – what, who's you know i probably had heard of elvis but like within a week or so i had a, a poster of a big poster of elvis on my wall so i was like a weirdo eight-year-old who was like a really big elvis fan in ashley michigan and then after that not shortly after that um i also watched ferris bueller where uh ferris sings the um the 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 beatles song when in during the parade scene and i was yeah, like oh, i like the, that song yeah so for my yeah so for my birthday i went out and i bought uh, you know, my first two cassette tapes were an RCA collection of uh, like golden hits by Elvis, and then I bought the Beatles Rock and Roll Music Volume One uh, on cassette with my birthday money. So those are my first two tapes, and I was pretty lucky that I happened to pick two pretty good starter. It's like a good starter <laughs> pack because if you start there, um, you know, th there's a lot to explore. Uh, and it's old stuff. I remember being the kid in class who I liked oldies music and no one else really did. So it was probably kind of like an oddity that I just happened to get sucked in that portal. <laughs> you know, it could have been um, anything. But so that so was the first. Rich, how old are you? I am 42. Yeah. Okay, so, so I was you, born in 81. Okay. Okay. So, um, so just a few years younger than me. And this this experience of like sort of finding these couple of bellwethers especially where you grew up. My, my upbringing was somewhat similar. I grew up in the thumb until I was 12. Um, for folks right. not from Michigan, they can, they can hold up their palm and they can, they can see if they hold up their right hand. If you look at like the, the, <laughs> the knuckle on your, on your right thumb, that's basically where I grew up and you grew up kind of in the middle of the palm, but we both grew up in a place where like it wasn't near a big city. There wasn't other stuff going on. And there wasn't even an environment in the town that, that I grew up in or I'm sure where you grew up knowing the area where there was any, as you said, kind of culture, there was no sort of forward momentum to like go see bands or to fall in love with music or to even fall in love with things like uh, movies that weren't blockbusters. Anything that wasn't sort of like mass culturally accepted was weird. Was yeah, that the experience you had growing up? Yeah. I mean, you know, especially in Ashley. I mean, I moved to a slightly bigger town after Ashley, but it was still Perry, which is, you know, a very small culturalist town as well. I mean, there's, um, you know, 
performing arts isn't a thing there. And, you know, there's probably been only a couple bands to ever come out of that city. And one of those is the People's Temple. And I helped champion them for quite a few years just because they were from my hometown. But uh, yeah, and it, one other thing that I should mention early on was I happened to watch the movie Stand By Me, and that soundtrack really affected me. So early on, I started getting into that 50s stuff like the Coasters and the Dell Vikings. Um, and so I just got bit by that bug of seeking out older music. And um, and my dad luckily would leave it on the oldie station. That's when radio still played actual oldies. Uh, U2 and Pearl Jam weren't <laughs> weren't classic rock. Uh, yeah. They were still programming. Now, for, were your parents big yeah. music listeners? Were they were they avid listeners or was it just kind of a thing where you got a bug and then they sort of listened more because you were listening more? Now, well, I mean, aside from my dad just throwing on an oldies channel. Um, there was no, I mean, we didn't have a record collection. There was nothing in the house. Um, probably by the time I was 12, I had a hundred times more CDs and cassette tapes and some vinyl. And, uh, early on, I got a, a record player when I was probably about right around the time I discovered Elvis and me, I got a record player with an eight track built in. And so I yeah. go to yard sales and back then everyone was dumping off all of their their vinyl and stuff from the 70s and i would buy boxes of eight tracks um so it was just seeking out and finding that stuff with no money i mean also i didn't come for money so it's not like i could say hey i want all this stuff buy it you had to wait to get birthday money or, or wait for christmas to ask for a stack of cds and eventually when i turned about 12 or 13 I did the thing where you just rip off BMG and you, you order yeah. 12 CDs for we one all, cent. Uh, we all built our, our collection in part based on based on buying uh, 13 records for a penny and then never paying for any of them. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so it was that it was that sort of thing of just uh, finding it where you can. There's there was no Internet. That's why whenever people today younger than me talk about how uh you know what's not cool like oh nirvana's not cool and they weren't re really this or that and it's like well back in the late 80s early 90s mid 90s there was no internet to tell you what was cool uh you really had had to dig to find it. it's just that old classic story then eventually you end up stumbling into places like flat black and circular and there's people like john howard working there who can suggest good things to you it really so, does uh, it, yeah. it genuinely does take a village you know, most yeah. of the time when I talk to people about sort of their falling in love with music and the and the things that kind of led them down that path, there's usually some kind of a gatekeeper. It's a parent, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor, a mentor, a teacher, somebody who's kind of fostering it at least a little bit. And they basically go, here is a little bit of information. And then if you're like me and I think like you, you sort of you're so voracious. You just go down the rabbit hole and you find your own avenues. And then from there, you start to find other gatekeepers. And then you get into that sort of second level with people that you don't know, except in the realm of, of, of buying and listening and making music, people like John Howard. And so you have these sort of like safe, sacred spaces that become almost like church, right? Right. So you go yeah. to Warehouse, you go to FBC, you go to Wazoo, you go to whatever the story is in your town. And there is a community of people there who not only know what's out and what they like, but they know that if you like X, you might like Y. And so yeah. oh, I can yeah. remember walking into like Warehouse Records in uh, East Lansing. And uh, and this was this was, you know, probably when our mutual friend and my bandmate, Jason Lantrop, worked there. And I had yet to meet Jason. But I can remember there was a guy there who was really into shoegaze. 
And so when I went in and told him that I really liked My Bloody Valentine and Ride, he was like, do you have the new Slow Dive record? And I was like, I don't know what Slow Dive is. And he was like, <laughs> right. you need to buy this. And so I, I bought it. And I was like, I bought Suvlaki. And I was like, what the hell is this? This is amazing. Yeah. And you can, you can still get that all of the time, which is great. But like, there is something special about that sort of meaningful personal relationship with somebody whose job it was to basically go, I know what you need. Yeah. Yeah. And they're getting, yeah, they're getting um, all the new press releases and the new releases from smaller labels like touch and go or wherever, where if you walk into Walmart, I mean, for the first many years of my life, I'm pretty sure I bought all my music at Walmart, like the new sure. Walmart in Elma, Michigan, which was like, but to me, that section was like, uh, you know, majestic. Um, yeah. And then you start realizing like, oh, there's other stores. And then across the street on queue, I think that was like a division of Sam Goody opened up. And that's where they had music books and it was an actual music store. And so then uh, I would start just buying compilation CDs and uh, then there'd be actually knowledgeable people working at those stores too. I mean, yeah. I spent time working retail. I, I spent time working at FBC, but I also worked at uh, the Virgin Megastore in New York when I lived there for a while. And uh, there's lots, and that's a chain store, but those people were knowledgeable. My coworkers were really good. And the reason I got hired there, I walked in, they weren't even hiring. And there's a manager on the floor. I just moved there. I didn't have a job and uh, was destined to be uh, very poor within the matter of the week. And I said, hey, are you hiring? And he's like, no, but if you can name me five bands from Seattle and every single member of the Wu-Tang Clan, I'll give you a job. And uh, I did on the spot. So they literally hired me on the spot because of that and uh that was like the last gasp of cd sales though i remember right. the second eminem album came out that week and we got a pallet the size of me in and you know you fast forward a year or two with the following eminem and you probably got you know a couple boxes of cd right. so i kind of hit that last golden era of retail stores but luckily now uh, places like FBC are thriving better than ever because of vinyl. So it's kind of swung back around. To it's kind of funny. I better. think there's a, I think there's a new, I don't think, I mean, I, I kind of see a new wave of, of brick and mortar retail that has become more curatorial. So yeah. whether that is, um, you know, sort of your specific kind of like curated uh, gift or specialty shop or like a, a kitchen store that sells really unique stuff. It's really about, okay, I'm going to bring in these disparate things and create an environment for a particular kind of customer or audience. And so stores like FBC can kind of cater to not only their audience, but also the tastes of their owners and the people that work there. And yeah. because of that independence and flexibility, it, it can still be a space where you can allow a new listener to maybe find either new music or music that's new to them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's great. And um, I think it's still the people that find those stores are going to keep the tangible album alive. And just the idea that an album is worth something. Um, right. Obviously as everyone knows singles and just putting something out on Spotify is probably the, the smarter and wiser thing to do right now. If you're trying to do anything like get signed or any of that cliche stuff but uh losing the art of the album would be a pretty sad thing you know if we fast forward uh 20 years and albums are obsolete so i like the idea i mean for a long time i just recently stopped burning mixed cds because i sold my car with the cd player and i just don't have one in my car anymore but yeah i like the idea of having 
a constraint of uh, fitting a, the a perfect mix on a CD that you, and that's what you listen to. I just you know I and I just recently got Spotify um, because it was a gift to me. So I never even used that until recently, and I'm still actually kind of figuring it out. I don't really. Uh, no, the too convenience, much about it. There's a lot of music on there, but there's still some stuff not. Yeah. The convenience of of the streamers is undeniable. And you can't, you know, as as a both as a music lover and as somebody who is trying to make part of my living making music and, and making records, um, it's a it's a mixed bag, right? Like it's really difficult to make any money at the same time. There's no gatekeeper. You know, anybody can put something up. Um, you you can you can produce and release a record for almost no money. Um, that's incredible. Um, I guess what I, what I sort of miss is the, the investment that's required from the listener, right? So you used to have to go to a place, you used to have to spend money, you used to have to do research, you used to have to to take time. Now I don't, I don't want to sound like an old man and say that it's too easy, but when there's no investment from the listener, it's difficult for them to have as meaningful a relationship, I think. Oh, most definitely. I mean, um, and it's really disposable. I mean, you can listen to something once and forget you listen to it. It could be a right. great song that you love, but when it's not sitting in the room with you, it's easy to forget. That's why uh, I, I keep an Instagram where I post just photos of musicians and whatnot, and it's almost just like a timeline of don't forget these people exist in this great music. It's like a reminder of like, hey, go back and revisit this person, especially when I find something rare. I'm not posting rare stuff to try to show how cool I am because I like rare music. It's literally so I don't forget. <laughs> I don't forget. Well, and about it's also it. how is nobody else talking about this, right? Like you posted yeah. a you posted a clip the other day of the birds playing You Ain't Going Nowhere from like the Clarence White era. And it was obviously yeah. on some TV show or something. And I'd never seen that clip before. And then as I thought about it, I, I realized I'd never seen that lineup playing anything off that record live. Yeah. Um, yeah it's great. Yeah. That's, I and, love that. And era. that's, that record is incredibly special to me and to you, I think, I mean, it's a really, really yeah. amazing piece of work and a record that record nerds know, but the vast majority of music listeners, even people who are kind of familiar with the birds and sixties rock often miss that record. Yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, that's the, the main thing about uh, <laughs> liking that kind of music, it's uh, you talk to people and either typically either they love it or they've never heard of it. <laughs> you right. know, uh, if, if they know about it, usually they, they love it. Um, and the birds, uh, they've had it so many different eras while they were active. And uh, yeah, but most people would know the turn, turn, turn stuff. But even now, that music nowadays, uh, unless it's like the Beatles – or something very popular, uh, the culture has kind of really pushed that stuff aside. Um, and it seems like in an era where you can hop online and you can literally everything's at your fingertips. It seems like more stuff should be catching fire and kind of blowing up and people revisiting stuff. And it is like you said, in certain pockets of like record nerds. Um, but I'm hoping it swings back around to where younger people are are really digging back to older music. And I'm not saying there's no younger people that do that, um, but there's just so much out there. I mean, I spend a lot of time digging back and trying to find music that's old. Um, I try to balance that with finding new stuff as well. But for me, I'm always like, wow, what else is out there that I haven't heard? And there's a there's an allure of history to it as yeah. well. Right. There's a, you know, um, 
Are you familiar with uh, the Emerson Brothers? Yeah, yeah, they're okay. making a movie about that. Yeah, yeah. So there's a movie coming out about this about these two brothers named. Oh, they're the Emerson Brothers. It's Donnie, and it starts with an R, but I don't remember his name. Richie, something or Ronnie or I, something like Ronnie. that. Maybe yeah. it's Ronnie and Donnie. I don't. It doesn't matter. It's these two brothers who basically like their parents mortgaged their house to make this record and they thought they were going to make it big and then it never went anywhere. And then a few years ago, uh, a reissue label called light in the attic, put it out and it sort of had this second life. And now it's being made into a feature film. This is literally the story of two brothers who made a record in their house and then kind of just faded into obscurity until a few years ago. Yeah. That's an incredible story. The other thing that's amazing is it's a really great record. It's a record from running wild. That's so fucking amazing. It's just, it's just so good. Oh baby. That song is so good. Um, and there is just this whole new world of things like Lightning Attic and Numero Group and all these other sort of reissue and boutique labels that are that are basically not just finding great old records. They're finding amazing stories. Yeah. And so for me to have those two things together with what feels kind of like an archaeological find is sort of irresistible. It's like Indiana Jones meets you know, garage rock. And it's like, the, it's the best of both worlds. How much are you paying attention to that? Um, to, to, when, when are, are you saying to like, older I'm like, bands? The whole, like the whole world of like the, the, the sort of like new cottage industry of, of reissue labels. Oh, and, very much, very uh, much. So, I mean, um, okay. I, I, a dream of mine is to put out, uh, this kind of like subgenre that's called loner folk where, uh, Quite honestly, I'm not a huge folk music fan when it comes to like traditional, I don't want to say run of the mill, but run of the mill folk. Right. Uh, I'm just not, there's some stuff that I'm into a lot and I love. There's some folk music that's really great, but then there's a lot of generic stuff and, or uh, cookie cutter stuff that sounds very samey to me. But I've been digging back and finding 19, some later 60s, mostly stuff from the 70s, kind of. Uh, you know, a little bit into the early 80s of these private press folk records that people have kind of like dubbed loner folk. So I actually have an NTS radio show called Outsider Oldies. I've actually done two two episodes on my some of my favorite loner folk stuff. But, you know, a dream of mine is to put out like a Nuggets box set of this loner folk stuff where it's folk music, but there's something off about it. You know, that's where the loner aspect, meaning they're kind of, there's something off <laughs> there is kind of what that always that's the indicator is that it's not your typical folk record and these are and largely folks who are weird lyrically self-recording and doing very very small sort of budget kind of records right yeah so either you know they either did it at home or they went to a, like a studio where you, you pay to play and then they would just send it off and get it recorded so there's usually very few of those so i actually have a release in, in mind um, that I'm going to be hopefully doing this year, if not next year, of uh, an old loner folk record that was recorded in '69 and released in 1970, and uh, it's just never been repressed. So that's a, a record called Bob Edmond. I see no colors, and uh, so that'll be my kind of dabbling into to that whole world of. Uh, it was released. It's really good. And then it just, like you said, it just kind of fell off and nobody cared at the time. And that's because there's no machine, no machine about it. I mean, back then, if you weren't Elton John 
or the Bee Gees or something like that, you weren't getting promoted, then you didn't exist. There was no internet for something to maybe catch fire and go viral. It, there was no options unless someone was buying. Well, you have to, and you have to stone. remember too, that like, if you're going to do that and you're going to press your own records, then you have to find a way to make enough records to get them into stores. You've got to yeah. find a distributor to do that for you. You've got to get radio promotion. You've got to get tour promotion. Like it's, it's still an expensive thing to do, even if you're doing it yourself, but to do it 50 years ago, it was prohibitively expensive. It's one of the reasons yeah, that the new digital age yeah. is really yeah. is really transformative for artists in both right. positive and negative ways. Yeah, I, and I learned a lot about that when I was researching that uh, a book I wrote on Big Star. Um, it's called uh, "There Was a Light: The Cosmic History of Chris Bell and the Rise of Big Star." But that was their their whole thing is they actually were somewhere in between. They were an indie band who happened to have friends at Stax Records. So their label became a subsidiary of Stax Records, who of course had big money to promote Isaac Hayes and all the big, terrific uh, Stax Records artists. Um, but they got lost in the shuffle on that even. They were even getting distribution and marketing money from a somewhat really big label. And they still fell through the cracks just because that label is not focused on a small band from Memphis that nobody's really ever heard of. They're focused on becoming uh, even bigger millionaires by selling Hot Buttered Soul by by Isaac Hayes. So yeah, they um, want to sell more. They yeah. want to sell more soul records. That's their whole motive. Um, yeah, yeah. What yeah, was the if experience they were bigger, of? Yeah. What was the experience of writing that book like, Rich? How did you go about researching it and getting in touch with the the different folks who who were involved and who had been a part of the band. Right. So I think I started that book around 2013 or so. So, um, you know, it was just something I would do in the evenings. I worked, uh, I had, you know, family responsibilities, you know, you have to go and go to your niece and nephew's birthday parties and go and do stuff, but you have to like etch out time. So I'd wake up early or stay up late or do both. I mean, there was months there where I would wake up two hours earlier than I should be getting up and stay up late, you know, two hours later than I needed to just to get it done. I started realizing that there was no way you're going to write a book if you don't put in the work. Had um, you written a book I, before? I, no, no. And actually it started out not even writing a book. I was just going to do a story for, I think, Uncut or something like that. One of those magazines from London. I was just going to write a story about Chris Bell. And then I started realizing that, oh, hey, there's like people that's willing to talk to me. And I started getting a lot of stuff that I didn't think I was going to get as far as information about him goes, because the people in his family and the people in his bands and his friends were all pretty guarded about Chris because of the way he died. Uh, you know, He died tragically at 27 in, in a car wreck. And so there's just kind of like force field around Chris's legacy where people were, were protective of him for and for a good reason. And there's also lots of misconceptions about him. So I started slowly like uncovering some stuff that I didn't think I'd be able to. And that's part in you know partly because I befriended John Fry, who sadly he passed away before the book actually came out. But um he called me out of the blue one day and just said, hey, like uh you know, I hear you're working on this and blah, 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 blah. And uh, I think it's a good idea. And I think if you're going to do it, you should do it right. And so he just started kind of befriending me. We talked for a couple hours 
off the record about stuff. And then he started putting me in touch with not only Chris Bell's like big star, you know, world, but also Chris Bell's like friends and their, you know, his friends' girlfriends. And that's the, where I that's orbit. where I really like to get the the story because if you just talk to musicians, guess what they're gonna talk about? Like music for the yeah. most part. It's really hard to get them out of talking about recording and, and and that sort of thing. Or that's just how they knew Chris. When they were around Chris, he was the musician. But right. as soon as you start talking to someone who he went to church with or who who he played tennis with you start getting that full picture of who he was not only as a musician but as a human and that's that was really my goal that i started realizing that i want to make chris not just this mythical sad musician that people had kind of painted him as but who was he as an actual person and it took me a, a long long time to to build trust with a lot of people and to talk to people multiple times. And I traveled to Memphis multiple times. I traveled to North Carolina to talk to um, his bass player from Chris Bell's uh, solo era when he did I Am The Cosmos, which is obviously his his big song. So I drove and met his bassist, Ken Woodley, who sadly just passed away last week. But um, oh, no. he was the last person to see Chris Bell alive, and so I was able – to do the first and only interview Ken Woodley's ever done. And he refused for years talking to anybody. But um, I just happened to know a couple of people who was friends with him and who vouched for me. We all convened uh, in North Carolina and we spent a weekend there. And I didn't talk to him about Chris Bell at all until like 10 minutes before we left. And uh, I, was, I was getting ready to leave. And then, boom, like at the last minute, I built up enough courage to say, hey, can we actually talk about Chris? Because you know, to him, that's not just some rock guy that I'm writing a book about. That was his friend who he dropped Chris off at his car, and then 10 minutes later, he was dead. Right. Uh, so it was a pretty heavy, heavy conversation. And um, But it was things like that where had I just stopped at calling him and getting a no the first time, the, uh, the book wouldn't have been complete. So I really pushed, and people who were hesitant, I gave them time. And uh, I just kind of would come back later and, when and you're, say, hey, I really think you should do this. When you're reaching out to people and you're asking them to share their story, sometimes really difficult parts of their story, like the one you're talking about, it really is about the whole idea of trust and just continuing to show up and be genuine and you do your own thing. I was I, I had the, the distinct advantage of playing at this gallery in a small town in central Kentucky and they have this great program there where they bring in three college students every year and two of them are photographers and one of them is a journalist. And they're, they're given a place to stay. They're given food. They, they do work one day a week at a gallery and the rest of the time, their only responsibility is to just document what's happening in this rural county in Kentucky. Wow. Cool. Right. That's, that's all they do. And I was talking to the guy who runs this program and he has this one young lady and she was just nervous about going into people's homes and trailers. And he's like, look, I understand that this is weird, but you need to understand that you have to live with these people to get photographs where they're really showing them themselves, where they're really, they're really showing you a side of themselves that nope, that's the only way you're going to get to that. And so to, to get those kind of conversations and to get those kind of photos, you have to be willing to risk it and put yourself in the moment and to say, I'm here because I care about your story. I'll be here till you, right. you trust me enough to tell it. And it yeah. sounds like that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, and it's also 
being genuine also helps. It sounds like that that's a very genuine cause that they have going on there. And it's just showing that you have the best of intentions and what you're trying to do is preserve the history uh, of this guy who lived till he was 27 um, and never made it while he was alive, really. And then slowly after he passed away, uh, he became something. And I think that's a very interesting, worthwhile story, and I think Chris would have wanted um, his story to be told and to do it with as much honesty and uh, and if you're gonna if you're you gonna can. have that kind of passion and that kind of talent, you're gonna put work into the world. You would love for it to be recognized in your time, but if it can't be or it isn't, better to have it recognized after you're gone than to not have it recognized at all, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, and. Uh, I've befriended Chris Bell's older brother, David, who um, helped him early on in his career, and uh, he was his manager for a few years after Big Star broke up. Chris and David, with David's money, he cashed out some investment (laughs) that he'd made in real estate, and they blew all this money going and staying in London and trying to get Chris signed. And so David has all sorts of insight, and I talked to him once for the book. And uh, only because, and I'm sure why he talked to me was John Fry called and said, hey, you can trust this guy, Rich. And then after that, we just kept talking and talking. And now, you know, we we talk all the time now. I mean, he, you know, he, he checks in with me and uh, we're friends. And I've been over to, um, you know, the house that Chris Bell grew up in. His sister still lives there. It's this big kind of gone with the wind looking house outside of Memphis in this nice suburb. And I went over there and they showed me the room that used to be Chris's room, you know, with his some of his stuff, the same, still the same curtains and everything in there where it was Chris Bell's room. And they were just very welcoming. But yeah, I mean, if you go in there and someone catches a whiff of you're trying to exploit them or you're not really going in there with the best of intentions, um, then they're going to tell you to beat it, and that's and they should tell you to do that. And you know, and there's some stuff I left out of the book that was, you know, what some people might call juicy or whatever, um, because I just didn't think uh, that Chris or other people in his family a certain thing where it's like, well, Chris isn't here to a hundred percent vouch for this or to confirm this either. So there were certain things where I left it out. Where it would have been like, oh wow, did you read this part in this book? And um, you know, I don't care about selling a few extra books. I would rather be able to sleep at night knowing well, and that be able I to go back to those. If people. If there's one percent chance that it's wrong, it's not going in. Right, know? and to be able to go back to those people, like his brother, like his sister, like his friends, to be able to go back to them and say, I didn't sell you out. I didn't do this for gossip. Right. I did this because I wanted to tell the truth. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, yeah. telling the truth is a hard thing to do, right? It's, it's a difficult thing to do. Uh, even, right. even when it's about somebody that we don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of deliver it warts and all because we're all flawed human beings. And whoever is, if, if anybody writes your story or mine, there's going to be some stuff that you'd rather not share that there's going to be sides of yourself that you don't right. want to broadcast. And so right. you've got to be, you've got to be fair with that, but you've also got to be respectful. It seems like yeah, um, there's a balance, and there's st- some stuff in there that does push it. But if it if there was that stuff in there, and, and there is some of that stuff, I got it okayed by Chris's brother saying, "Is it okay that I put this in here? Because right. I don't want you to be surprised." And he would okay it. Uh, so, in some of the stuff that was left out, it's like, and I got good advice from my my friend Drew, who actually did the Big Star documentary. Uh, 
which is fantastic. It's yeah, absolutely great terrific job on film. that. And so I asked him, I said, hey, like I told him the story and we both agreed it's a juicy story. But also Drew said, well, does it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Like, is that really is that really important to the story or is it just kind of gossip, juicy gossip? And I think a lot of rock biographies, that's what they're going for. They're looking right. for what's shocking, uh, what stupid shit did Steven Tyler do th- it's, this it's, year? It's tabloid behavior. Yeah, and they're looking to sell books and they're looking sure. to, to get like headlines, and, and that's fine. I mean so if that's what you enjoy, that's fine. But really for me, it was figuring out and unveiling who is Chris Bell. And uh, I, I think what I uncovered was he's not just some shy emo guy who was a pushover, that he was actually very strong-willed and a, a very uh, you know, hardworking musician who knew what he was doing. He knew how to tell people what to do in a studio. You know, he worked with Jeff Emmerich, uh, who was working with the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, you know, he was critiquing Jeff Emmerich and saying, Hey, no, I don't think we should do this, we should do this. So he was standing his ground with someone who he worshipped. Um, so there's lots of stuff that when you start learning that stuff, it's like figuring out how, how do they tick? And for me, that's, what's the most interesting. And i get, I still get messages frequently from people all over the world saying like, wow, I never thought that I would know this much about Chris Bell because for the longest time he was just the big star, the guy from the first big star record. And then that posthumous 1992 collection, I am the cosmos that came out on Ryko disc and there was like liner notes that david bell his brother wrote that were really good but you know that's they could fit in a cd booklet and that's really what people knew and then there was a, a couple big star related books and there was some stuff about chris in there but nothing fully on him so uh my whole thing was tell about chris but then also talk about his life but then also the life that came after he died which is when most people like i said got to know him they didn't know you know I didn't know that band until they didn't know him back in 1972. <laughs> no, well, yeah. they didn't. Nobody. I mean, unless you were on the inside, unless you were a music journalist, or maybe somebody in radio, Big Star was just missed. You know, for all the things we talked about and all the things that are documented in yeah. the, in 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 the doc, um, which I will link to in the show notes. Um, but but to me, it's it's this idea of like, here's this band that in many ways has sort of the same itinerant parts of a band like the Velvet Underground, where it's like everybody who bought the record wound up forming a band and they, they have this enormous influence on what becomes power pop, even though they're not really a part of it. Um, And they, you know, they influence, they influence enormously influential bands like R.E.M. or the Posies or uh, Guided by Voices or some, are some bands that are clearly, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, hewn from that sort of formation of of grit and melody and uh, guitar. It's just, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And then most people know a big star song and don't even know they know it, right? Yeah. Right. So it's the 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 it's in the street the the theme from that '70s show. And correct me if I'm wrong, Rich. The first season it's the big star version, and then after that it's Cheap Trick. Is that right? No, I think I think what it was is the first season was some like studio band, and then I think they got Cheap Trick to do it for okay. starting this. So they never used the actual Big Star version. Okay, um, but they did re-record it, and uh, I, I talked to John Fry about that, who was the producer of the record, and he run Ardent Studios, which is where. 
they recorded the song. And I guess the producer just reached out and said, you know, we think that song is like consolidates what the 70s is all about, you know, driving around, hanging out with your friends. And so that's why they picked that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they were thinking they were thinking about doing cheap tricks, uh, surrender or something like that. Yeah, uh, but they wound up going with Big Star, and uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm glad they did because Alex Chilton and David Bell, who handles Chris's estate, you know, actually got to, you know, recoup a little bit, bit of the money. Right. Um, that's probably one of the bigger money makers they they ever had was getting that song placed. And since then, you know, just recently Beck covered "I Am the Cosmos" by Chris Bell. He wow. put that out as a single. The Yeah Yeah Yeahs did a big star single recently, so they're still popular bands that that are covering them. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of back in the day. Big star came about and kind of blew up in the late 80s, early 90s because of bands like you said, like REM. The replacements, obviously. Them. Yeah, you know we're a big yeah, yeah. we're so a big people, part of it. Yeah, people were talking about him. And I actually just got to meet Mike Mills recently uh at this Big Star tribute show in Glendale, California, where they, you know, it was a terrific show. I mean, I'm usually not too hot for for cover sets. Like, I mean, I'll go and watch one, but I mean, uh this was next level production. Uh Chris Damey from the DVs did the whole thing and it was just sonically perfect and they had tremendous guest stars and of course jody was there playing drums and mike mills uh and uh a bunch of people were there so it's still something that kind of like lives on by other people talking about it's just that grassroots thing of um had no one ever name dropped them and left breadcrumbs back to big star they probably would have been forgotten uh because there's lots of lots of bands from that era even on major labels uh i'm still i look around for old folk and rock and roll records that were released by big labels because i know that they forgot about them if they weren't a big hit they didn't really care about them too much so big star is just one and there's been other bands like you know that band death that had a a documentary Right, that was another band that i was thinking about when we were talking about documentaries and kind of kind of underseen bands that was another one that came to mind right away yeah Um, yeah so yeah yeah so it's it's a one of many, but that's just the one that I decided to write about because I thought that like, hey, uh, no one's writing about Chris Bell. It's almost like a niche within a niche. He's uh, he's Chris Bell within – he's the Chris well, Bell niche I will, within the big star niche. I'll, I'll pitch you something I have I, – I know I have mentioned to you and talked to you about before and that our mutual friend Joel Kuiper, better known as Colonel, has been trying to get you to do for years, which is to write a book about the history of the Lansing music scene. So, yeah, I actually just yeah, I mean, I just had uh, someone else wrote me and said, "Hey, you should uh, compile something on Lansing music." And I've often considered trying to get like a grant, where, like you said, where I can just work on it for like a year, right, and just collect the stories and um, do the interviews because eventually, you know, the stories will be gone. We'll all be gone. You it know? won't so, be very. Um, it won't be very yeah. long, comparatively speaking, yeah. Rich. I mean. We're talking about an era when it was most fertile in the 60s and 70s in Lansing. I mean, it's still very fertile today, just in a very different way. But it was booming in the 60s and 70s when there was the whole British invasion and everybody started a band, right? Like Lansing, like a lot of other towns of that size, really kind of punched outside its weight class and had a lot of stuff going on. And so we had some pretty remarkable venues and people coming in from all over the country and all over the world. And, you know, I... And 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 you have the you have the deep connection to 
to Motown and the Detroit rock scene. Like just, it's so vital and vibrant and it's in such an interesting place. And I think, again, I think it's an undercovered story. It's a little bit like, I would love to put out like a Michigan version of Nuggets. Like I would yeah, love to oh, it's it's I mean I have one compiled for you. <laughs> Great, uh, let's do I, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we probably could and uh yeah, I I thought about doing a compilation called Not Detroit like the story of Lansing or something like that because yeah, I mean it's easy to get overshadowed by Detroit and even Grand Rapids to a certain degree, but Lansing definitely Starting in the late 50s with a band called the Blue Echoes, they were really good, and there are, those guys are still kicking around. I think as of fairly recently, they would still do duo shows, oh, but wow. they put out uh, a single called It's Witchcraft, which is real good. It sounds like something the Cramps would have covered, um, and then so starting with the Blue Echoes, uh, who would play at the – the Lansing Civic Center, they would open up for the big bands coming through. I mean in 1959 – Buddy Holly played at the Lansing Civic Center on this big rock and roll show. So at one point, you know, it's crazy to think that Buddy Holly was, you know, walking the streets of Lansing and pulling into the Civic Center. And uh, all the Motown reviews would come into the Civic Center. And then after that, you start getting uh, venues in the 70s, like late 60s. So it was co- first was called the Grandmothers and then the brewery. Then it eventually turned into Silver Dollar, which was not as good but it did have a few <laughs> good moments i mean allison chains played there in the 90s i mean uh so they had some good stuff so there's lots of venues um there's lots of folk there's a a venue called the, like the fat black pussycat in downtown east lansing where all the folk people would play you'd go downstairs mm-hmm. and there was this real hippie vibe people would sit on the floor on the carpet and and watch folk people and it and, is a it is a college yeah. town so there was a lot of stuff yeah. happening um even even up through the 90s you know um, but like, I'm specifically, uh, like, I'm always fascinated when you post stuff about, you know, so-and-so had a residency for five days at the, at the silver dollar or so-and-so played at the, um, whiskey barrel on a Tuesday night or whatever. Right. Um, like I love that stuff, but I, I love even more when it's stuff about bands like the blue echoes or some band that was regionally successful and then they all went off to sell insurance or whatever when they turned 26 you know like i'm fascinated in those stories where people did a thing for a while and then they walked away and so there's this beautiful little piece of history left this beautiful little moment of sort of enthusiasm and youth that's never gonna fade yeah there's a a lot of bands this speaking specifically about the 60s bands they would all go to Sparta, Michigan and recorded this Great Lakes recording studio, aka Fenton Records was the vanity label that they would slap on there. But it's just basically this big movie theater. And so all these kids from Lansing and Grand Ledge would drive to Sparta to record because not only could you record there, but Dave Kallenbach, the guy who owned it, would also help them get impressed. So they'd leave and so they'd record and then they get a box of records shipped to them. So there's bands like the Plagues, the Bojens, um, you know, all sorts of these local regional bands, Tonto and the Renegades, and they would all go there and record. And then now those records, I mean, there's a Plagues record, and it's one of my, it's one of my top favorite 60s 45s period called I've Been Through It Before. That Plagues record sells for like 900 plus dollars. Wow. Um, and it's just, it's real good. And uh, yeah, so the, the that band broke up. One of the guys took off because he didn't want to go to Vietnam. So he, he took off and uh, the other guys formed another band called the Plain Brown Rapper, which kind of blew up in, in throughout the 70s. And they went to that whole Prague area. Just last week, I was in a Zoom call where 
the guys from the plagues and the plain brown wrapper and some of their friends they just did a big zoom call and I thought it was really cool. They invited me to to kind of come in and help moderate. It was for nothing. They just wanted to talk That's about awesome. the past. And so um, in talking them and hearing those stories, like you said, it's like this time capsule uh, that could very easily just go away unless someone documents it. And I, I've done some documenting of that stuff for, for City Pulse. I've done cover stories on the 60s scene, the 70s music scene, the uh, touch and go punk era with like yeah. Tesco V, the Meat Men and the Fix. I did a cover story on that. And so eventually I needed to do one on the 90s as well. But uh, yeah, there, there are all these bands that when I contact them, they're like, wait a minute, you want to talk to me about my band from when I was like 14 or 15, like you care? And so that was a lot of the initial when I would contact a guy uh, you know, who used to play drums in Tonto and the Renegades you know, uh, back in the 60s. He'd be like, oh. Okay, yeah, I can talk to you about that. Uh, some of them are su- surprised. Some of them are still very nostalgic, and you know, sadly, a lot of them have already passed away. Right. Um, you know, so that's another thing. It's almost like a, a countdown to getting this stuff reported and documented before they're all gone. Like I was just saying, uh, we're all going to be gone. Uh, so eventually, what you're doing right now, you know, unless someone's documenting this stuff, it, it's all going to be gone. But luckily now we're in the digital age. So you will have someone some still time. has to find it and care about it and, and contextualize it right. for people. Right. And and the reality is that while we're making this stuff, millions of people are making millions more things. And it's, it's just, the it's abyss. Hard. It's really it's the just abyss getting harder and harder to find yeah. the needle in the haystack. Um, yeah. What I'm what I'm really kind of fascinated about with the whole. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't I can't be objective about. Michigan music. I have a, it has a special place in my heart. I, I have a, uh, I have a bias. I don't care. I'm not looking to change it. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the things I'm kind of amazed by is that growing up in Michigan, I didn't realize how much I took for granted all of the things around me that just felt like home that I assumed everybody, like I assumed everybody had some version of Motown. Everybody had some version of the Stooges and Seeger. Um, they don't. It's a yeah. Michigan's a special place. It's a. It's not. It's not the most special place. It's not the most important place. But it's incredibly special outside of Michigan. And when I think, you know, when people go, you know, why Detroit? I just go, well, think about what you would have done in 1975 on a Friday night. You would have driven around and you would have listened to the radio. Yeah. 90% of that experience came out of the city of Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? A lot of that has to do with the right place at the right time and the lack of stuff to do. I mean, sure, there wasn't the internet back then, but uh, as far as distractions goes, there was a lot more distractions when you're in a bigger city like New York or Los Angeles. And there's lots of people who they're not native of that area they move there for a job and it's very they're all transplants uh, they're not they're not natives you know and when they're not you get bands like the beach boys you know where they're plugged into that community and they're they're comfortable and they have an environment where they feel comfortable making music where it's like in michigan you get bands like the stooges and bob seeger and the last herd they're settled into these areas with uh you know nothing to do other than like you said listen to radio and then we just got lucky and we had Motown Records that just popped up in Detroit. And before that, uh, a label that Motown kind of like looked up to, uh, there's a, a local label called Fortune Records who are putting out all these 
rockabilly, R&B, gospel, hillbilly records. I mean, they were putting out tons of Fortune Records is one of my absolute favorite um, uh, studios and uh, record labels ever. But so you, you just happen to get those. And then so you, you can drive by and say, oh, that's where Motown, like you can make records, you can do that. And I think it just happened that that's it was in their backyard. It's like what Alex Chilton from Big Star said about Memphis. It, you know, when you grow up with Stax Records there and all these other like smaller labels and Sun Records, it's like if you're an actor and you're growing up in your backyard is the MGM lot. You know, you're, hey. you're growing up within that culture and it's not weird. You would see if you were a kid in Memphis, you could see Elvis driving down the road on his motorcycle going back to his house. So, um, it just wasn't, you know, when when Alex Chilton became a, a rock star at seventeen, his friends, I talked to all of them, and it wasn't just one person trying to be cool. They were all like, "Yeah, we weren't that impressed. It was just something that happened." Whereas, right. if a kid became a rock star at my school, that right. would be like a monumental happening. But when you're in Detroit and Memphis and those big music cities, it's just it's just a part of the industry. It's it's well, like if you've ever them. have you ever seen the map of like the sort of the core Motown artists where they show you the map of the neighborhood where the Gordys lived, where the Franklins lived, where, where the Ross family lived. And like, right. It's rich. It's like 12 square blocks. Yeah. It's like 12. It's, it's like the rock and roll. It's like the soul wing of the rock and roll hall of fame. And it's a fucking neighborhood. And you're like, Holy shit. Smokey Robinson lives there and Mary Wells lives down the street. And like, it's unbelievable. They all went to church together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wrote uh, they would get their records pressed up in Owasso, Michigan. So 15 minutes from where I grew up, uh, there was American Record Pressing Plant. I actually did kind of a big story on this for the local Owasso paper. Um, But I talked to locals who remembered they'd be at this, you know, coffee shop in Smokey Robinson or or people, you know, Mary Wells um, and Barry Gordy would walk in because they would go there sometimes to pick up records themselves. Uh, Smokey Robinson remembers driving from Detroit to Owasso multiple times, you know, Michigan ice storms because they needed to get those records because they needed to sell them. And uh, it's just amazing that that stuff was happening 20 minutes from where I grew up. And there's a a really early Motown group called Nick and the Jaguars who wrote um, and recorded this instrumental called Ichiban Number One. It's a really good, you know, rock rock and roll instrumental. It doesn't really sound like Motown, but for some reason, uh, Barry Gordy liked these kids, and so he put out their record. Well, I ended up figuring out that Ichiban Number One was about Ichiban Donuts in Owasso. So, no way. Um, you know, my the the theory is is that uh, those kids went to go pick up records for Barry, and they drove by and they saw uh, this. Uh, you know, this donut shop, or actually what I ended up hearing later on from Ben Blackwell from Third Man. He told me that it was some other guy who was like producing the record and told them, hey, add on where you say Ichiban number one. Uh, and so that's where the song came from was because a Motown guy who was working with them had driven by this Ichiban donut. So it's just <laughs> there, you know, that can't happen anywhere else other, other than Michigan where they're driving. You got Smokey Robinson driving through an ice storm to Owasso, Michigan, of all places to pick up records. It's amazing. I, I, I'm always like, OK, you're talking about that. Like I'm, I was. I was probably your age the first time I went to Motown. I went 10 or 11 years ago. I was in my early 40s. 
Growing up, lived here my entire life. Yeah. Music fan my entire life. Never went. Went. Yeah. And it's a, I didn't get that emotional at the Vatican. Now I'm not Catholic, but I love right. art, right? I, but I love beautiful things. We all appreciate you. You are in a space and you're overwhelmed. When you stand there and you are in the room where um, virtually every Motown hit you can possibly think of up until the early 70s was recorded, uh, it's a stunning place to be. It's a, it's a sacred space um, that it, it should be a UNESCO World Heritage Site for Christ's sake. It's amazing. I always think there should be armed guards around that place with fire extinguishers just in case, uh, you know, just because it's amazing it's still there in the condition it is because Fortune Records wound up being demolished, you know, uh, back in – Most of those places yeah. didn't make it. You know, most right. of those spaces, you know, one of the few one of the few cultural icons of that era that's left in Detroit is Archer Records. You yeah. know, it's a family yeah. owned record pressing plant where we've actually pressed three or four titles. It's where we get our vinyl done. They're great. Yeah. And they're amazing. Um, but they're one of the few things left. I mean, um, the building where Mac Records was downtown on Grand Boulevard is gone. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot. The Grand Ballroom is still standing, but a fraction of what it used to be. Um, yeah. And that's a conversation for a different day that we could have. About yeah, that's the, just, the, that, I mean, the, that just goes back to what, what we we're saying is that's what happens when you don't preserve and value um, the, the locations and, and, and what happened. And, y you know, some people might argue that, hey, it's just a building. But um, I, I think, you know, I'm reading a book right now by um, an author I really like, and he wrote it about Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska album. And uh, he talks about how he went to go pick up Bruce and they went to go drive by this room or this house where Bruce wrote one of the songs and it was gone. And, uh, but he saw like Bruce looking out the window at where it used to be. And he could like see that, like he couldn't see it, but Bruce could, could see where it was at. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, that that's a great story because it's so true because um, you know, there, those are historic spots. And for us, you know, maybe not for other people, they might not care that, what sounds happened in those buildings 50 years ago or 10 years ago or, or, or whenever, but, but there you know, are places where that stuff it's gone. There are places where we, we sort of preserve, we preserve our own legacy, our own cultural history. Um, I just went to the battlefield at Antietam in Maryland a couple of weeks ago when I was on tour and I'd been to Gettysburg a couple of times and I'm a big history buff. And Gettysburg is a really neat experience, but it's like Disneyland. Yeah. It's filled with tourists. Have you been? No, I haven't, but okay. I imagine they've turned it into ex it, to, to it, the gift shop. It's, yeah. it's massive. It's massive, right? It's just this incredibly huge thing. And they're just churning busloads of tourists in all day, every day. You go to Antietam, and there was a parking lot of maybe 40 cars, and it wasn't full. Yeah. And then you pay your 10 bucks, and you drive around, and largely you're just alone. And you're in this sort of open space, and you're kind of reading and watching these videos about what happened. And what I found most moving about it was that I was alone. I was standing yeah. in this place that had been preserved for nothing more than to remember what happened there on one single day, which to this right. day is still the bloodiest day in American history. But the point yeah. was, we'd taken the time and the care to set this, this space aside, and I was moved by being in it, and I was changed by being in it. And we can't do that with everything. We can't just hang on to the past forever. We have to move forward and we have to change. But I think, I, I think there is something vital about curating those spots and those spaces to say, 
this is important and worth saving, whether that's this Motown, this yeah. happened. Um, and this was important to who we are, whether that is uh, the, the cave dwellings at Mesa Verde or Motown. Like, yeah. you know, to me, funny. they're all part of the same arc. Yeah, you talk about that. That's the exact setup they have at Graceland and Elvis, where you go across the street and they bus you over one at a time. You stand, and it's almost like you're in, a, in line for a ride at Disneyland. Yeah. And then you get across. And I remember the first time I went to Graceland was like, I don't know, maybe like 10 years or so ago. And they try giving you like an iPad and headphones. And I'm, I remember like I got in the room and you have someone like narrating what you're looking at. And then you have an iPad that you're supposed to be doing something with. And eventually I just took it off. I was like, I'm not, I took off my headphones. I'm like, I'm in Elvis's house and I'm not even paying attention and taking in that I'm standing in Elvis's house. So I, I just took it off and walked through and just looked at shit. And I don't, you know, it, you get, you know what it is. Hey, that's the jungle room. I know what that is. Or, Hey, right. all of his awards are on the walls. He wanted those there. I don't need someone telling me, you know, everything. I just took in that I was there and, uh, and tried to remember. It's just that whole culture of people taking photos and recording and needing this information overload where, like you said, just being there. Oh, we're was, documenting was the cool it. Part. You know, I can are look we up facts later. It, right. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. documenting it. Are yeah. we experiencing it? Are we actually absorbing it? Or are we just saying, yeah. I was here, I was here, I was here, you know, I, and I find myself doing that when I travel as well. And when I, when I go to a space um, and I want to, I want to preserve that moment. I want to be able to have it for later, but there's a balance, right? Like you want to be able to go, okay, I'm present in this. I'm not, I'm not going to experience this later through my photos. I'm going to experience it now. And the photos are for me to recapture that experience, not the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that was the part where, uh, I mean, I, I 100% agree. Like, you have to be in the moment, especially these days when there when there's so many distractions. And um, and but yeah, I mean, overall, I, I totally agree that there's an amount of history that should be documented in some fashion. And I think Lansing definitely deserves it. I mean, there was no huge bands other than like say like the Verve Pipe and Stevie Wonder spent some time here. Right. Um, but there's other bands that did so much stuff and had such big followings and uh, they have stories too. And I mean, I have a story from this band called the Ferraris. Um, they were not twin. They were twin brothers. Um, and uh, they were these just the, you know, two, two kids and uh, the Juarez brothers. And they had uh, Stevie wonder come over to their house and uh, they jammed in the living room with them. They have a, a recording of them just jamming with Stevie Wonder. Their mom made, uh, a, you know, a, a dinner for Stevie Wonder. And it is because Stevie was in town. Uh, this was I think it was he was still at the school for the blind, but they were getting ready to do like some show or something there. And the Ferraris were opening and they just kicked, you know, hit it off with Stevie Wonder. Um, so there's all these like side stories. And then you got Bob Beldori from Lansing, who's in the Woolies. And, you know, he played with Chuck Berry. I mean, Chuck Berry recorded an album at Bob Beldori's house in Okemos. Oh, my God. Um, you know, so like Chuck Berry, like I think it's his like San Francisco blues record, which it's funny. It should be the Okemos blues. It's over there on <laughs> Mount Hope, uh, Mount Hope over there, you know, near like in between Hagedorn and. Right. Uh, right over right. by campus. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And I know that Chuck Berry like pulled in one day with his guitar in his back seat and a convertible just pulled in and they recorded it out in 
in Beldori's barn and he, he toured with Chuck Berry for years and met all sorts of people. I mean, Muddy Waters, all these people. So there's definitely these stories of Lansing area people with amazing amazing stories over the years and also just amazing music you know that's another part of it is um there's this great band called magic and uh they were around in the late 60s early 70s and they they did a really they did a couple records but their enclosed record is so good and luckily i've gotten to befriend Dwayne king he's still around the the lead uh singer and chief songwriter of that band and uh, i want to keep talking to him more because it's just another record that was overlooked i mean it check out the song uh you must believe she's gone it's so good and uh, it's just another lost in the shuffle (laughs) record would you say the name uh, of this band was lansing roots they used to play all over magic Magic. Okay. Yep. And their band, the records enclosed. Yeah. It's from 1969. They would play all over. They play the free shows downtown East Lansing. They played a big famous show. A lot of people remember at the Planetarium Stars. And uh, yeah, they, they were just real great. Um, And so I think getting all that stuff together, whether it's in a book or a, a, a corner or a section of some sort of like local museum would be, would be really good um you know and i think what i want to find is was there ever any blues people in lansing i would love to see you you find a way to to put this together i mean it's obviously that's selfish but like uh when i when i think about projects like the nuggets project for example and there are other lots of other projects like that that's just sort of the biggest one i can think of and most people are aware of um it opens up this whole new world right like yeah there's so many of those songs now that we think of as sort of standards or even hits that, you know, until that, until that got put out in the seventies, nope, nobody had heard those songs except for a handful of people who lived in those towns. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, Lenny, the, yeah, that was all Lenny K, you know, he's just records he liked and when he right. put them together, it made sense. There's a lot of music back then, but it took Lenny K going, all these bands fit together really well. Don't they? Right. Yeah. And you could, you know, and now, you know, there's there's so much stuff that's been unseen. Like I've been wanting to do a <clears throat> you mentioned Lansing in the 90s. I've been wanting to do a comp of 90s Lansing bands forever. Like I was super happy when Third Man did Southeast Saturn. But yeah, there's so much there's so much more that that could be called from that. Not even in oh, that world, definitely. you know, um, and I would love to see somebody uh, do a piece and and maybe put a playlist or a, a comp together of the of the mid Michigan old country scene in the early 2000s, which I happen to be a start, part of. Start a thread on your Facebook asking people to suggest uh, tracks. That's a, that's a great idea. I mean, I've I've had this conversation with so many friends. I should just I should just do it. I should just do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I would help. I mean, I could help with liner notes. Um, that'd but be great. yeah, I mean, I mean, sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties. There's all different eras, and yeah, the the cool thing about those nuggets box sets is because it they start to all make sense once they're all sitting next to each other right once you contextualize really them as like part of like, a larger yeah. as part of a larger yeah. scene you can sort of see the the way that they're they're influencing each other and the way the culture is growing um, it's regional yeah i mean that the, yeah. i'm really interested in that regional thing of like a band from uh from sacramento california in the 60s isn't 
necessarily going to sound like a band from Ann Arbor, Michigan in that same era. Sometimes it's just like the surroundings. I mean, you listen to Bob Seger in The Last Herd. Uh, a lot of people give Bob Seger shit these days, but um, you know, he had a whole career and a whole discography before he wrote one song that that most people know about Bob Seger. That's right. And it was just him being listening to the radio in Detroit, Michigan, and taking in what the DJs were playing and what he saw and who was inspiring him. Then he became friends, uh, you know, and started being friendly with people like the MC5. And so it's all that stuff that just kind of seeps in it. But but it really, it's regional. It depends on where you're at. That's why those comps are, uh, when they're local to a city, are very interesting, uh, you know, historical kind well, of documents so, of what was going Yeah, they on. belie so much more than just what's happening musically. You can hear it. You can hear a culture and a um, kind of a, a philosophy almost, uh, a way of life sort of yeah. eke out of the grooves, right? Um, Rich, I could talk to you yeah. about this for for hours, man. This was so much fun. I hope this is not, I hope this is not, I hope this is not the last time that we do this. And I hope that, I hope the big star book is not the last book that you release for us to enjoy. Oh no. Yeah. I'm throwing around some ideas and, you know, definitely uh, something about Lansing is definitely not off the table. I think obviously it would be hopefully something maybe MSU or some, someone would, would get behind on putting out but uh, i think either it's a book or some sort of like audio oral history project like anything like that just so it's even. documented yeah yeah because um, for me i mean the the big star thing it wasn't i didn't do that because i'm like i want to write a book and i want to get credit for doing so, you know something like this um it was more so i was like wow that's why i chose the oral history format when i did the book was because i wanted to preserve their voices and i thought like Hey, it's going to be really sad once I start like paraphrasing and reworking this into my voice. I think I should leave it in their voice because literally I just wanted it to be a brick of what kids from the 60s in Memphis had to say. I thought that was much more interesting than me twisting it to my own words. So uh, doing something similar for Lansing, uh, I love that city. I love Detroit. I love Lansing. Um, and it would be an honor to do that. So maybe, uh, I'll, I'll do the audio and you can do some sort of a release on it. (laughs) You got it, man. We'll, uh, whatever I can do to help make it happen. Um, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk to me. It's just really fun, man. I appreciate it. Likewise, man. Yeah. And if I ramble too much, we can redo this. (laughs) No worries. No, no. No, You're, you're talking to an experienced (laughs) rambler here. I appreciate it very much. Okay. Yes. Yes. All right, man. Well, Hey, thank you very much. Take care. Thanks again to my friend Rich Topeka for coming on the show and talking to us. What a great conversation. I just love the idea of putting something together for uh, like a Lansing style Nuggets thing. Man, uh, I really want to do that. I need to get my shit together and make that happen. Just add one more thing to the list, baby. Uh, Once again, send me an email. Let's make sure the new email is working. It's what am I making blog. What am I making blog? What am I making blog? Let's do that with some confidence, Matt. What am I making blog at gmail.com? That is the email address where you can reach me now. Send me comments, questions, suggestions, ideas, brownies, brownie recipes, whatever else you got. Send me, send me some stuff. You can also head over to speakpipe.com slash what am I making? Leave me a voicemail. And make sure you uh, rate and review the pod wherever you're getting it. Until next time, my friends, my name is Maddie C. I love you a great deal. I'm so glad that you are here. Thanks for being a part of this thing. And I will see you next time, my friends. Peace.
Cheers. You know, that there was a production for Mattis C and his ADHD. They both did it. <laughs> <laughs>